that. I'm glad people bring their Bibles. A lot of churches, they've gotten away from the use of God's Word. And whether you're using a Bible like this book form or whether you're using a Bible in digital form, I'm just glad that we use God's Word. This is where the direction, the instruction, this is where the power is. This is where everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness is found in God's Word. So I, I never want to minimize or diminish the importance of God's Word. After uh, first service, we were actually talking about translations a little bit. I was talking to, to somebody who brought up a point and... Uh, so it just, uh, regardless of the translation you read, it's important that you, you do read. So let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we ask that you'd bless now the study of your word. Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, give us instruction. Give us hunger for your word. And Lord, just bless your people. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen. We've been going through these different qualifications for someone who is in ministry. Old King James uses the word bishop. I've mentioned it can also be translated. I think the Greek word is presbyteros. You might be somewhat familiar with it. Or another word that's used later on in Paul's epistle is the word for elder. And uh, so Paul is writing to Timothy about these different qualifications. I really was thinking I would get through all seven verses the very first time we got through this, but uh, I'm, I was wrong, and I'm always frequently wrong. And then last week I thought we would finish up in verse 7, but we didn't. But now I know we're going to cover these next few verses, picking up in verse 4 to verse 7, just because there are three qualifications. I don't think I can botch this up, especially since I already did it first service. And I did it in a timely manner, although sometimes second service I tend to to add a little bit more. But uh, I'm going to read the first three verses leading up to verse 4, and then I'll read to verse 7 as well, just to give us, again, the whole picture. Paul writing to Timothy in verse 1 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, an elder, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, able to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Verse 4, where we're picking up, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 4, where we're picking up, one that rules his own house well. I, at times, look at this and I think about the importance of parenting, not just from a, you know, a believer's standpoint, because the scripture has a lot to say about parenting. In the book of Proverbs, it tells us that we're to train up our children in the way that they should go, and when they grow old, they won't depart. 
That's a hope that I believe Christian parents have. And the ability to be able to train or to raise up your children to parent, I'm grateful that as a new believer, my wife and I, once we got to that point in our marriage, and we had been married seven years before our daughter came along, we had great examples of brothers and sisters in Christ that had raised children. We were able to take some mental notes, things that we saw that they did well, and maybe some things that we thought they didn't do so well. And sometimes I think it's important to understand the passage, not in its isolated form, but to understand the passage in its context. And I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul mentions in verse 1 that this is a person in ministry, whether it's a, a pastor or whether it's elders or bishops in the church or, or leadership in the church. You know, the, the definition of that word bishop that I gave a couple weeks back was somebody that, in a sense, is like a shepherd. He's tending sheep. And the other thing that I, I, I look at when I think of this, the word that's used there is one that rules his house well. In the NIV, it says he must manage his own family well. And the, the word in the Greek there, it's only used eight times in the New Testament. It is the Greek word proisteme, proisteme. And, you know, it, it gives a, the Strong's Concordance gives kind of an expanded definition of the word and how it's used. Because if I just simply say someone that rules his house well, I immediately kind of gravitate towards things like, structure and being in the military or or being in a very structured environment. And I think sometimes Christian parents think that that's what it means to be a good Christian parent, to have this structure and these rules and these regulations. And if your kids step out of line, you're ready to pounce on them. And, 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 and you know, just this really tightly wound mentality of parenting. And, and I'm sorry if maybe... <laughs> Maybe if you're maybe lean that way, I don't. And even as I mentioned the military, I think of a couple of examples, probably not the greatest examples. I'll give you examples from movies that I've seen that are based on true stories, but also two examples of, from the scripture. When I think of someone, again, to ruling their house in that type of a way that maybe is a misunderstanding of what this says, I think of the movie, who, who hasn't seen the movie, The Sound of Music, Captain Von Trapp. Before Maria comes into his life, you know, she's coming as a governess to take care of the kids because his wife has passed away. But he had been a captain in the Navy. And he rules his home. He manages his children like they were in the Navy. He blows the little whistle and they stand on the line and they stand at attention and they're dressed a particular way and there's this protocol and he has this sternness about him. And again, too, you know the rest of the story. And, you know, he had just, all he didn't know how to parent. And at the passing of his wife, he just simply did what he knew to do which is a carryover of his experience in the military. Same thing. Another movie I'll reference, and I'm very cautious to bring this up. I bring this movie up just because I saw it before I got saved, so I want to qualify that. There's probably some pretty bad language. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but it is based on a true story, and it's the movie called The Great Santini. 
and it is about this Marine Corps pilot. Actually, I think he's a captain as well. And it kind of chronicles his life and how he raised his family and how he was assigned the squadron. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, his jet develops trouble in an F F4 Phantom. And in the end, instead of trying to make it back, he sacrifices his plane and himself instead of endangering citizens. But the thing is, in the movie, this guy was just this hard-nosed Marine. And he ran his, his family like Marine Corps boot camp. I mean, same kind of thing, calling them to formation. And, and the thing is, when I got saved, I was in the Marine Corps. And that doesn't ever leave you. If you've ever been in the military, there's just certain things that just never leave you. And I don't want to say that that was maybe a danger for me to kind of tend to be an overbearing parent. I don't think it was because I'd seen how that wasn't very effective or at times how, again, through being able to see how it worked out in the lives of others. I had seen sometimes in the lives of pastors or elders that had raised their kids this way that as soon as their children came of age, they couldn't wait to get out from underneath the rule of their parents because they felt like their parents dominated them too much. And again, the kid couldn't sneeze without the parent jumping all over them. The kid couldn't say anything without the parent barking orders at them. And, the, and again, too, that's what I'm talking about. That, I think that that's a misconception of what we think to rule our houses well. And I think, again, when I bring this up, and the thing I'll, I'll mention about these three different closing qualifications of an elder is to me, I, I, I think what is being brought up here are things that are observable. Things that, again, too, you can't hide. These are the practical application of a person's faith. See, again, you can do these other things. I mentioned them, and some of these things are observable. But some of these things, you know, you're just simply taking a person's word that they don't drink, that they don't, you know, you can't see in their heart and see whether or not they're greedy. You don't know whether or not they're patient. You don't know whether or not they're, they're covetous or some of these other qualifications. But one of the things that is observable is how well a person parents their children. And... It gives the reason why this is so important. And I also see this as if you can't do it right in the home, if you can't be a good father or a good parent in the home, then what makes you think that you would be qualified to manage anything bigger than that in ministry in the church of God? And he says, one that rules his house well. And what I was going to say is I've, I've seen pastors thinking maybe that because they were in ministry, they could even neglect their family because I'm serving the Lord. You can easily mentally rationalize or justify, I am serving Jesus, I'm ministering to the flock, I am doing all these things. And, and uh, you know, it's understandable, too, because when you realize the things that God has done for you, I mean, it should be our response. I, I love the Lord. I want to respond in, in kind. I want to respond to the love that He has shown me. And I've known over the years, like I said, especially as a young believer, but 
within the Calvary Chapel movement, a lot of the Calvary chapels that have been established have been established because men went out from other churches with the desire to plant and to go somewhere and, and, and to, to establish a Bible study and then see the, what the Lord would do as a result of that. And uh, so, yeah, this is something you just can't be neglected. And as I mention this, and as I mentioned then the importance of context, it doesn't negate the importance of, of being in a sense, like a good shepherd. You have to reconcile this with the other passages of Scripture. And to me, a couple of places of example, at least places in the Scripture, that give an example of this in the Scripture. One of the persons that's mentioned this way as one that rules his house well, we don't get a, a, a great picture of this because it's not like it says, that, and he took little... Isaac out to, to go fishing or to play t-ball and he, he, he taught him God's word. I mean, you don't have sometimes those narratives, but what you have is what the scripture says about him. And as God is preparing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes and sees Abraham with two of his angels. He sends two of his angels on ahead and he knows Abraham is kind of wondering why God has come down and what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God basically explains that he's going to explain to Abraham what he's going to do because Abraham is going to be a, a great and mighty nation one day. He says this in Genesis 18, but it's what he says in verse 19 that I want you to take note that ties in with this particular qualification. Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, God says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know that he will command his children and his household after, after him, that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. I know that he will command his children and his household after them, that they will keep the way of the Lord. A person that rules his house well is a person that is pointing his household and his kids to a relationship with God. The importance of the commandments. One other example that I'll give you, and it's of the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 of the father with the son who is a prodigal. And as you read that, and even as I mentioned, this one who rules his house well, I mean, the ultimate example of all of these is God himself or Jesus, the son of God. I mean, do you, do you, can you picture Jesus being a dad or being a parent, and again, to just pouncing on his kids if they just act up at all? I can't. And I just don't see that in the scripture as well. And in the story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15, even when the son, who is an adult, because you even have to cross the line. I mean, at what point, you know, is a parent responsible for his children? Well, when they are adults and making their own decisions or are married, which Lynn and I are off the hook now. Our daughter's out of the house and has been married for five years. But we were on the hook when she was a child. But here's the thing. I love the example of the father in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells the father of the prodigal. Because you don't get that sense of a guy that was this overbearing, you know. Sometimes parents can be just, I, 
maybe I can't even say it, maybe I'm demonstrating with my actions, you know, what kind of a parent I'm thinking of. But when the son comes to the father and he says, give me my inheritance, the father doesn't say no. Or the father doesn't say, you know, why? What are you going to do with it? I mean, the father, I think, again, to a beautiful example, I believe that the father has already taught and loved his son and taught him everything that he needs to know. But there's still a point where sometimes children will go their own way. And this isn't, I don't think, what the Scripture's talking about. I don't think it's talking about, okay, you have a child, and then when they've grown up, they decided to go their own way. You're disqualified from ministry because your kids aren't submitting to you or they aren't submitting to God. I think it's clear in its context that it's speaking, again, especially of raising children when they're young until the point that they become accountable. But getting back to Luke chapter 15, the son says, give me, give me what I, my inheritance. The father says, okay. And you know then that the father is waiting for his son to go through whatever experiences he has to go through so that he can come back to the truth. And that he can realize even after he has squandered all this wealth, the most important thing to the father is the salvation of his son. And it isn't until the son has learned these lessons and is eating with the pigs and is destitute that he realizes everything that is the love that his father shown him and how wonderful it is just to be a servant in the household of my father. And the father runs out to meet the son. The father doesn't say, okay, what did you learn? Well, before I let you back in the house, let me, I need you to write down an essay as to what you learned. And the other thing I need you to do is you got to pay me back everything. We're going to work out this payment plan. Father didn't do any of those things. He's just glad to have his son back. And he's glad that his, his son is, which was dead, is now alive. His son learns all the lessons that he needed to learn. And again, I love this because that's, for me, the type of dad I wanted to be when I was raising our daughter. That's the kind of, I think, love that's illustrated in the scripture. There is an importance, though, and, and I don't want to say, well, okay, you know, a person doesn't have to worry about rules or teaching or structure because I tend to not be very structured. I, I, but at the same time, we, when, our, when I think back to you know, our experience raising our daughter, I think it was enjoyable for us you know, as parents. But I think, it, you know, I think as Sarah's getting older, she's been able to look back and she's remembering with fondness some of the things that we did when she was growing up. And even though there were rules and there was this, and there was still a safety. And uh, one of the rules, and I think, too, one of the things, too, I mentioned, I mentioned in this first service, one of the things that we love to do as believers is we love to fellowship with each other, right? And between services, we do that. Between the break, between worship and the teaching of God's Word, we do that. After services are over, we do that. There's nothing like brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes we're talking scripture. We're talking about what God's doing in our lives. Sometimes we're sharing trials or difficulties that we're going through and asking for prayer. And sometimes we're just talking about things, whether it's sports or women maybe talking about crafting and card making and things like that. 
things that, or what, what do women talk about now? Essential oils, whatever it is you guys talk about. I hear that every now and then. In my house, we call them snake oil. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but I call them that. My wife, she doesn't like me. Never mind. <laughs> my wife doesn't like me. Just leave it that. <laughs> I should. My wife doesn't like me slamming essential oils. I should finish the sentence. She likes me. She doesn't like me slamming that stuff. But anyway, but I, I bring up this whole point of, of connecting and fellowshipping the church. And when we were at Calvary Chapel Oceanside, and then in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe before we moved back here to Minnesota. You know, that was one of the things that happened. And I had kind of this pet peeve even before we had kids. And it's when that is taking place, I never like seeing kids running wild. And I don't mean to get to your, I don't mean your daughter because that's adorable, her wandering around the sanctuary. Sean, I don't mean to embarrass you. I'm talking about, you know, after service, it's just like, where are the parents of these kids? The kids are doing this and they're, you know, building, you know, uh, escape hatches and ropes out of the church. And, the, you know, they're, they're plotting things and, and stuff that would go on. And, uh, and for, for me as then as a pastor, once the Lord blessed us with our daughter, I thought, I don't want that to be the case. I took the responsibility that God gave us of raising our daughter very seriously. And for me, the thing that was important was on a Sunday morning then or a Wednesday night after Bible study, People want to talk to me or they want to talk to Lynn. And I had always, my rule was a very simple one. One of us always had to have eyes on our daughter at the time when she was a toddler and a young child. Didn't care what was going on, who needed to talk to us, whatever trial. The priority, and it's very clear from the scripture, the priority is your family and how you raise your kids. And as for a pastor, that doesn't stop in a church environment. And so... You know, if Lynn was talking to somebody, then I was the one that was kind of the parent on duty, P.O.D., you know. I had my eyes on my daughter. And not that I was jumping in all the time, but I always saw what she was doing. And if she was in another room, I was where she was. I mean, I was just constantly monitoring what she was doing. And then if someone needed to talk to me, I would, we would like a tag team. Okay, honey, I need to talk to or pray for somebody. Can you keep an eye on Sarah? And then it was her responsibility. And I think it's important, again, to me, I'm just looking at this and just kind of expanding on what it is to rule your house well and what it isn't. It doesn't mean that you don't have fun. And I think one thing you could probably ask my daughter about her upbringing, even though there were probably some things she did not like about her upbringing and she'll probably vocal let you know. But there are a lot of things that I think that she can look back on and she could just talk about how I did things that were unexpected. I was just, she never knew what to expect from me. You know, when we would get her ready either in the morning for school or on a Saturday night if she had to take a bath before going to church for Sunday morning. You know, sometimes I'd fill up the tub with water and we, I remember one time we, we go into the bathroom and, and she's about ready to take her clothes off so she'd get in the tub and I just picked her up. She was probably about three at the time, maybe four, but I just scooped her up and then I just gently put her in the tub with her clothes on and all. And this look of confusion on her face, like, Dad, what are you doing? 
giving you a bath, you know? And she just, she probably still remembers that to this day of just me being the wild card that I am. I think parenting should be fun. Not only for you as a parent, but for the kids as well. Just my own personal opinion. The other thing too is I never wanted my daughter. And I think too, when it comes to ministry, you will make the mistake of either being overbearing or a, 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 a phone-it-in type parent. You just, you're not in touch at all. And there is, it's important as a parent to shepherd, to rule, to manage, to guide, to love, and to raise your kids in a way that imparts your faith to them. And in a way that, again, when they grow old, they don't depart from it. It doesn't mean that they don't go prodigal for a while. They don't make their own decisions. But the bottom line is they have to reconcile the faith that their parents have. And I would many times look at every decision, especially with regards to our parenting, not only the immediate result, but what does God's Word say, but also to what is going to be the long-term result of a decision that I make as a parent. Because I'd seen parents, Christian parents, Christian leadership in their parenting at times after a long period of time look back and regret, have regrets about how they raised their kids. I was at a pastor's conference one year in Indiana and Pastor Chuck Smith was there. And if you know anything about Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he's got, I think, five kids all together. And there was a question and answer session and Questions were written, and one of the things, the question that was written was just a very broad question. But Pastor Chuck read it, and the question was, if you had a chance to do anything, you could go back and change something, or if you have any regret, what would you change, or what regret do you have looking back on your life? And Pastor Chuck immediately became emotional, which was uncharacteristic for Pastor Chuck, because he was always just this calm, composed person. But his voice cracked a little and he just said, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have done a better job with my kids. And I took that because here's the temptation for pastors. I'll just tell you the temptation for pastors. Young pastors. I'm not a young pastor anymore. But the temptation for young pastors is... I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to do everything in ministry. I'm going to throw myself completely in it, and I'm going to neglect my wife and my kids in the process. But because I'm serving the Lord, I'm just trusting that everything's going to be just fine in my marriage or with my kids. And I learned that that just does not happen. And a lot of times pastors are looking for maybe some type of validation by how big their church is or how many people are coming or how well they preach or all these different things that, uh, that again, look at the rest of the Scripture. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's not with excellency of speech. It's, you want people's faith to be in the working of God's Spirit and in the Word of God. But I, I've known too many pastors that at the expense of their families have devoted themselves to ministry and made that the priority when it's clear, especially from these two verses, that the priority needs to be how well or good of a, a husband or how good of a parent are you. And 
There's no shortcuts to that. It's something that everybody eventually will see. The next thing that he mentions is found there in verse 6 where he says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. In the NIV, it says he must not be a recent convert. Even as I say that, and I like the fact that the NIV says a recent convert because one of the things that it's pointing out is there has to be a conversion experience that takes place. You may have been brought up in the church, but it doesn't mean you're saved just because you go to church all your life. There is a point at which a person responds to the gospel and invites Jesus Christ into their heart and is born again by the Spirit of God. I don't want to ever, you know, have anyone forget what the gospel is or the power of a changed life. But here's the thing, and, and I like the old King James, and I don't hear this particular word too often that's used, a novice. If you don't know what a novice is, a, a novice is somebody that really lacks any experience. They're learning. The other thing that's important to know about this particular word novice or the Greek word of this novice, or Greek word that is translated as novice is it means something that has been recently planted and just sprouts up. We're at that time of the year where things are starting to sprout up. And you look at it and you say, oh, look at this little flower popping up or this little blade of grass or this little bud on the tree that's beginning you realize that there, this thing is just at, in its infancy and it's just beginning its life. And that's the point of someone that may be called to ministry, that they can't be at the beginning or the sprouting stages of their walk with Jesus Christ. There has to be a conversion that's taken place, but also, too, they can't be inexperienced. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be young. But the other thing that it doesn't mean, and this is the discussion I was having with a brother afterwards, Tommy, he brought this up. He says, I love the use of the old King James novice because here's the thing. What if you've been a Christian for a long time? Does that mean that you're qualified for the ministry? No. Because you can have been a Christian for, for 15 years or 20 years, and it's clear that the writer of Hebrews is making this point, when at the end, I think it's of chapter 5, he says, by now you should be teachers. But instead you have need of someone to teach you what are the basic principles of God's word, the truths of God's word. He says, you're in need of milk and not of strong meat. And he says, milk belongs to babes. Strong meat belongs to those who, because of their age and their ability and their maturity, are able to, to digest it and be able to discern good, good from evil. I'm paraphrasing a little, but you can look at it at the passage. And so someone that's not a novice means that it has to be somebody that's matured, but it doesn't necessarily mean somebody, it doesn't disqualify somebody because they're young. Because a perfect example of somebody that is young and yet in ministry is the person that Paul's writing this epistle to. He's writing to Timothy. And later on in the epistle, I think it's in chapter 4, he's actually going to tell Timothy... In verse 12, he says, Let no man despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in the word, in conversation or lifestyle, in love, in spirit, in faith, 
and impurity. The other thing is, is that there must have been some type of a problem with Timothy and because of his youth. He wasn't a novice, but because of his youth, he was maybe viewed that way as inexperienced that Paul had to write the same thing basically to the church at Corinth when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 10 that if Timothy comes see that he may be with you without fear for he works the work of the Lord as I do he says in verse 11 let no man therefore despise him but conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me for I look for him with the brethren not a novice not somebody that is lacking in experience, but somebody that has matured. Now, one thing I like that God's Word doesn't do is it doesn't put a number on this. And again, you know, the NIV says not a new convert, but it also doesn't go into great detail of saying, okay, what does someone who's mature how long does he have to be a Christian before he can be an elder or a pastor? I remember when we first began to sense God's call on our heart. Bless you, by the way. Um, I got saved when I was 21. Is that right? 21, that sounds right. And... Um, you know, even too, when it says not a novice, I understand this because a new believer wants to serve God with all his heart. A new believer is so grateful for what Jesus has done. A new believer is experiencing that new life in Christ. A new believer just wants to get out there and tell others about Jesus. A new believer wants to, again, when they read the Bible, there are these truths that are jumping off the page of God's Word, and I want to teach others about the things that God's teaching me. There is this natural excitement that takes place, but the problem is that a new believer or a novice is lacking in maturity sometimes is lacking in discernment and it doesn't put a number on it when we left southern california lynn and i had been married for about five years i had been a christian for about six or seven years by that time and even then on the one hand i felt like i uh, i was equipped to do this to fulfill the call of god in my life I'm not a novice. I headed up the children's ministry in our church. I had headed up the evangelism at Calvary Chapel Oceanside. I had done, and again, too, I could you know, go through different things that we'd been involved in ministry. We'd been involved in, I'd led a home Bible study. Lynn had been on the worship team for five years. It's like, okay, we're ready, Lord. We're equipped, you know. And then we went to, to Santa Fe, or actually to Albuquerque. We were there for almost a year. We helped with the Calvary Chapel who was getting started up in Santa Fe. And then we came back here to Minnesota. We started with a Bible study in our house. And then you realized, wow, I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> Ministry's a, a, a you got to be called to it. And you've got to be equipped. And if you're not mature, you will mature in the process. But the warning is, and I think this is a warning not only for the novice, but I think this is a warning for anybody in ministry as well. It says, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's a great potential 
for pride to take place when God is using you. And God uses you. There's gifting in the scripture, and we talked about this when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Gifts are the things or abilities that God has given you the ability to do, and it's something that's supernatural. It's the imparting of spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. But it's clear in Paul's epistle to the church of the, uh, the Corinthians is that they were gifted, they had abilities, they just lacked maturity, and they were carnal, and they bickered, and they fought, and there was, they had favorite teachers, and there was lack of love, and they were judgmental, and they didn't, ref they didn't want to submit to the Apostle Paul's leadership as an apostle or as a pastor. I mean, they had their problems, but they could function in the gifts of the Spirit. I think sometimes there's a mistake in thinking, well, if I can do certain things, and I know it's God that's doing it, I must be mature. No, you're not. You're just gifted. A babe in Christ, and again too, who's been gifted, can go out and evangelize with great effectiveness because God has gifted them to do that, but they lack maturity. But the difference between gifting, you know, you can be given a gift, you can exercise a gift regardless of how mature you are, whether you're a novice or whether you're mature, but the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians, I think it's chapter 5, talks about then the development of love in the life of the believer and the maturity that comes with it. And the thing I'll say too about ministry, and there is a great danger for pride. You know, there's, it's a weird thing that God would use these earthen vessels and deposit His presence in us. I'm sure that there'd be much more effective ways, not only for the gospel to be spread, but for God's word to be communicated. But he chooses to use us, and part of the reason why I think he uses us, and the scripture says this, is that ultimately when someone looks at who God is using, and you realize he's nothing special, you know, that, that's, that's how the apostles were viewed. They were just uneducated fishermen, and yet the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, took note that they had been with Jesus. The other thing that God's Word says, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's talking about our calling, how that God doesn't call many wise. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty... Not many noble are called. Occasionally God calls some of these. The problem is, is if somebody is educated or wise or mighty or noble, then people tend to ascribe whatever work accomplishes, whatever work God accomplishes through that person's life, they tend to ascribe it to their particular abilities. Well, gosh, that guy's good. He's pretty smart. Of course, you know, God would use him. Or, wow, that guy comes from a pretty good family. Of course, he's got the best education and God would use him or he knows what to do or what to say. But verse 27, Paul says that God has chosen, this is the category I fall into. This is my group. You might be in group, you know, verse 26, but I'm in group verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world 
and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught or to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. The danger of pride and the reason why God uses the ones that he uses is so that God would get the glory. The last one that's mentioned is found in verse 7. Of all the other qualities and qualifications that are mentioned previous to this, this is the one that I find interesting. I like it a lot because it's one thing to be in a church and to put on a particular, whatever you want to call it, you know, so that everybody can see what and who we are and what we do. And I think at times even too, the non-believer is, is notorious for, for recognizing the fact that the church, they'll say, the church is, why would I go to church? The church is filled with hypocrites, they'll say. And here's the thing that God's Word says, one of the qualifications for leadership. Moreover, he must be of a good report of them that are without. In the NIV, it says that he has to have a good rep reputation with outsiders. It's clear that it's talking about everybody else that's not a Christian. The people that you work with. The people that you interact with, that live in your neighborhood. Uh, your family, when you get together with them, that aren't believers, when you get together for birthday parties or weddings or funerals or different things. And the qualification is interesting to me because really we have to go then to what my non-believing family and friends and co-workers have to say about me for some type of stamp of approval to be used of God? Yes. <laughs> How do you even get that? You know, If I was a pastor and I was interviewing for somebody in position of, of, of an elder or board member, it's like, okay, well, here, on this list down three people that you work with, list down three family members that aren't Christian, list, and then me call, I can imagine me calling them up and saying, hey, you know, so you tell me something about Jesse. Oh, I'm sorry, I just used that name. Just out of, out of nowhere. No. I love this too because this is something that was one of the qualifications for those that were to be chosen as deacons back in, I think it's Acts chapter 6 or 7. Um, when the need came up, they had to have a, a good report among the brethren. And the thing I see about this is that, see, the world is able to recognize, you know, if the work of God is genuine in a man's life, it's something that is not only being, is visible in the church, because again, we can put on our best face for the hour and a half, two hours that we're here at church on Sunday or on Wednesdays or, or from time to time. Show me what that person looks like outside that environment from church. What is it that they have to say? What do people say about them? Do they... And the thing, the thing I'll say is, you know, your family, your friends, your co-workers, the non-believers, 
they might not like what you have to say about Jesus or how you live out your life. But as long as, again, too, that is the issue that they have with you. Yeah, I don't like that guy. He's always preaching the gospel. He's always quoting scripture. He's always, you know, loving people and doing good things for people. Yeah, those are pretty, pretty condemning remarks that would disqualify a person. It's the stuff that would, that would concern me is that they say, well, you know what? That guy says he's a Christian, but he's always angry at work. Or he's always, he's, he's the least kind person in the office, or he's not very friendly, or he doesn't really care about people. He, he talks about Jesus, but it just doesn't seem like he's living it out in his life. And it's funny that the non-believer recognizes the disconnect between what we profess and how we believe. And that's almost even a, a, I don't want to say it's a better gauge, but it is a gauge. It is a, a method of measurement that God puts here in His Word. Is that those that are outside the family of God, what do they say? How have they observed your behavior? And I love this because this isn't only applicable. All these things that I've mentioned, they're not only applicable to those that are in leadership, but I think it's important for us as believers are we living our faith in a way that is bringing glory to God or are we doing things that bring reproach to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And even as I say this, you, you know, like the Apostle Paul says, I, I haven't attained. I don't share these things because, you know, now I feel, yeah, I... I'm right here. I've made it, you guys. You know, and this is what everybody else has to do. No, this is what God's Word says, and I'm humbled by it. And it's a good reminder of it. And it's important that I'm constantly crucifying the flesh and all of its wicked and sinful desires and wanting to get its own way and allowing then Christ to, to rule over my life and, and to reign in my life and to be, again, to a, a good witness for him in the world, out in the world, because people do see you. I, we have, my wife and I, we, we got these personalized plates on our car, so everyone knows, at least I think they make this assumption, they see on our plates, it says, God rules. I forget that we've got personalized plates. Even as I was driving to church this morning, a, a guy and it wasn't intentional or anything, but he started to drift into my lane, and so I just honked the horn. And then even as I'm now starting to go by him, he wasn't mean or anything, um, but I started thinking, you know, sometimes I, after I honk at somebody, I don't want to go past them because I don't want to see my plates. God rules. What kind of a Christian are you honking at me? I, wasn't, I didn't mean to drift into your lane. That was an accident. Show a little grace, dude. You know? But I think we should profess that we're Christians and I think we should live up to the profession that we make. I think that's probably just a simple way of putting verse 7. Next week we will start looking at deacons. A lot of what I've already previously mentioned as far as the qualities are mentioned as well. And uh, we'll look at, at them as well, but also their wives. I like the wives are mentioned. And again, too, it's important for for women to be godly as well, to have certain qualities if they're going to be used or be in ministry. 
or at least in a position where they're recognized within the body. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, your word at times just cuts like a surgeon's knife, Lord. It, it brings about healing. There can be conviction, Lord, at times, but we're so grateful for your word and for the work that it does in our lives. And I pray, God, that we would have a hunger and a thirst for your word, that we would meditate upon your word, and, Lord, that we would be doers of your word. Thank you for just a, a gracious and wonderful church family that you've called me to be the pastor of. I, I love, Lord, what you've called me to do. Thank you for my family. I just ask you to bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.